Welcome to Roads Less Travelled. My name is Sophie Ryan and I'm an Australian Rhodes Scholar currently studying in Oxford. In this series of conversations, I talk to some remarkable individuals about the roads less travelled they've taken in life and some of the things they've learned along the way. I've seen terrible things in my reporting, but side by side with the worst of humanity, invariably you find the best. And so you come across a warlord who is slaughtering people. You also come across these just heroic individuals who are risking everything to do the right thing, to assert their humanity. That evidence that when we're tested, that human decency comes through has, <laughs> has somehow reassured my faith in humanity, even when I'm reporting on some of the grimmest things we can possibly cover. Our guest today is Nicholas Kristoff, renowned New York Times columnist and author. Nick has become known for his unique brand of reporting that aims to shine a light on the most neglected people and places around the world, and he's really good at it. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes for journalism, an Emmy for his video reporting on COVID-19, numerous humanitarian awards, and pretty much every honor available in American journalism. Together with his wife, Cheryl Wudun, He's also authored numerous books, including the New York Times number one bestseller, Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, which for me personally remains one of the most important books I've read. Nick, welcome to Roads Less Travelled. Thank you so very much for being with us. Oh, great to be with you. Let's dive straight in, Nick. The way we usually start these interviews is by taking you on back to the beginning of your road, so to say. And in that regard, I was hoping you can just tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up. Sure. Um, so I grew up in uh, actually where I'm speaking to you from right now, which is the family farm in rural Oregon. And um, it's very much shaped my thinking about a lot of issues because it's an area that did well. It's a working class area. The biggest industries here traditionally were uh, timber, agriculture, and light manufacturing. The biggest employer was a glove factory. And so it was doing pretty well when I was a kid. And, um, you know, there were <laughs> there were a lot of kids who were much better auto mechanics than I was, and I was better at reading than they were. But it wasn't obvious which skill set would actually be a more useful one. And then the rewards to being good at school um, surged and the rewards to being good at uh, mechanics plummeted. And so this area has really uh, struggled. I know then uh, meth, uh, methamphetamines came in, mm. uh, struggled more. And uh, the this is uh, Trump country around here. Every, you know, people mostly uh, support President Trump and you know, the urban rural divide is, um, you know, in many ways, all my values and beliefs are very much with uh, urban liberal educated America. Uh, but I happen geographically now to be in um, rural, uh, conservative, um, somewhat less educated uh, America. And it, you know, shapes my thinking a great deal. Absolutely. And tell us a little bit about your parents as well. Uh, how were you raised in that regard? So my parents were academics, so we happened geographically to live in this, you know, on this family farm, but um, they commuted much longer than anybody else did to Portland. And so, um, you know, the there were books all over the house, the family discussion at the dinner table was about, you know, philosophy, et cetera. And it was always understood that I would go to, to college. And so I, um, you know, I raised sheep and 
at other times we had various other livestock. We have a cherry orchard um, and we weren't so much more affluent than other families in the area, but the educational expectations were much, much greater. And that, you know, that made all the difference. Uh, the kids uh, right down the road for me, who I walk to school with every day, um, um, you know, one one spent 20 years in prison and the other died mm. while he was homeless. And I, people sometimes ask me, you know, what the difference was. And the difference was I was surrounded by books and uh, they were growing up in a somewhat dysfunctional home uh, with uh, well-meaning parents who were alcoholics. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've been described as the moral conscience of your generation of journalists do you think, was there anything particular about the home that you grew up in and the context in Oregon that, that led to the formation of your, your moral compass and also a quite international compass in that regard? Well, my dad was a refugee and uh, from Eastern Europe. And he, um, he, I mean, he's lucky to be alive. I'm actually just finishing a memoir right now, and I learned a little more about his past. And uh, so he, in the post-war period, he fled to Yugoslavia and uh, at one point was almost executed. And a French diplomat, um, um, you know, intervened on his behalf and spoke up for him and uh, helped. And, you know, probably because of that, uh, he survived. And Look, this wasn't really any of that French diplomat's business. You know, he wasn't advancing <laughs> French interests. Um, that diplomat's career did not thrive. And I've always wondered whether he paid some price for his, you know, his efforts beyond supporting France. But, um, you know, it was completely transformative for um, for us. That's why I exist. And so that sense of you know, internationalism, having a, a dad who was a refugee, um, understanding how sometimes modest efforts can completely transform uh, lives, the degree to which we can be enriched by immigrants uh, rather than not impoverished by them, um, I think was something that I, uh, you know, absorbed very early. Um, and I guess the other thing that has shaped my uh, you know, maybe the earnestness of a lot of my columns, <laughs> or as critics might say sanctimony. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, it's just the interviews I've done in the field. And I mean, that really started when I was at Oxford and this great system of, you know, these incredible vacations uh, when you're at Oxford. And um, the road stipend at that point was paid to us um, at the, you know, beginning of every vacation as well. And so I did a lot of uh, travel and reporting when I was at Oxford through West Africa, through, mm. um, you know, India, Pakistan. Um, Just before, before you go into further also the journalism that you did while you were in Oxford, I was curious to know at what point you had the, the light bulb moment that, that journalism was what you wanted to do. I know that you were very involved in the school paper in junior high school and then also at Harvard as well. At what point did that did you have that light bulb moment that that was what you wanted to do? So my journalism career really began uh, in the beginning of eighth grade when the school decided to start a school newspaper and I 
I wasn't really thinking about it. I didn't go to the organizational meeting. And the next day, a friend of mine uh, said, uh, well, nobody wanted to be editor, uh, but we solved that uh, problem. We chose one anyway. And he said, oh, who'd you choose? And he said, you. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> and, um, and my half the sky inclinations uh, kind of began then because our middle school, uh, our seventh and eighth grade, they did not allow girls to wear blue jeans. And uh, they could wear other colors of jeans. They could wear blue clothes, of other, but not blue jeans. And so I championed this as a um, as an equality issue. And yeah. it was very cool to have seventh and eighth grade girls, you know, uh, you know, loving my work. And um, uh, and so that was my first successful editorial campaign. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, but. I wasn't sure. I, I love journalism. I did a lot of it in high school and college, but I, I wasn't sure that I would end up as a journalist. And when I was at Oxford, I, I read law. I was in some danger of becoming a lawyer or a law professor. Um, but um, when you say some danger, how seriously did you consider law as a pathway? Quite seriously. I um, So at the end of my, so I read law as an undergraduate at Oxford and then to pass the bar exam in most states in the U.S., I needed uh, at least one more year of U.S. law school. So rather than uh, so I, I applied for an LLM, a one year LLM uh, and got in at uh, Harvard. And so I, you know, I was thinking about the uh, LLM and uh, that you know, then there would have been a certain amount of debt. There would have been a desire, well, I should pass the bar exam. I should, you know, get a clerkship. Uh, a lot of my friends were ending up at the Supreme Court as, as Supreme Court clerks. And that is so cool. Um, that would have been hard to, you know. And so, you know, I could well have gone through that kind of academic uh, or lawyer route. But at the same time, I was weighing a invitation from the American University in Cairo to study Arabic. Mm. Uh, there and that was really appealing. I I didn't know anything about Arabic, but it just seemed like a you know a very cool thing to do. And I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And I thought that Arabic would be a very useful toolbox to help me get there. And so I was wavering my I guess it was spring of my um, second year at Oxford between this kind of legal future and this. Arabic slash journalism future. And um, and you'd been doing some journalism while at Oxford as well, right? You'd been traveling during the vacations, I understand, and writing? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my first vacation, I went with a, a fellow Rhodes from the Pacific Northwest, and we went to Poland just when martial law was declared. And um, then the warden of Rhodes House at the time, you know, Asked the British Foreign Office that, you know, we have two Rhodes Scholars in <laughs> martial law. And I'm not sure what he expected, you know, send in the, the helicopters or something. But um, did you go to Poland suspecting that something might might happen while you were there or it was just whim of the moment? No, I mean, it was the solidarity labor movement was in full swing against a communist government and that was exciting and thrilling and i wanted to write about that but we didn't anticipate that that the crackdown would come uh right then that was really an accident and i was very lucky in that um most of the reporters were in warsaw 
uh, and when the crackdown happened, they could not send out their stories. Phone lines were cut, telex lines were cut, telegraph, uh, phone, everything was cut off. So the world knew that something enormous had happened in Poland, had no idea what, they couldn't get their stories out. Uh, meanwhile, in Krakow, uh, I was able to find uh, people leaving who essentially were able to get stories out. And so my stories were on the top of the front page of the Washington Post for several days. And and that wow. was a tremendous you know, opportunity. And um, so a lot of polls suffered. I benefited. Yeah. It, it was, you know, that's one of the troubling things about journalism, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. After that, I, I did another trip with a, another Rhodes friend. We kind of hitchhiked across West Africa from Nigeria to uh, Senegal and Gambia, um, then a trip through Pakistan and India. Um, uh, after uh, when I went down, when I finished my scholarship, uh, a couple of friends and I took the Trans-Siberian Railroad, I mean, through, nice. through Europe, across Russia, through Mongolia into China. Um, so. Um, uh, it was really, you know, the Oxford experience that opened my eyes to the world. Mm. And also, you did very well in your law degree, didn't you? How'd you manage that with all of the travel? <laughs> I carried my torts and contracts books along <laughs> with me on my They laptop. were in your backpack. <laughs> yeah, as we were bouncing along buses in rural India, I was, um, you know, reading about uh, torts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, okay, well, backtracking then to uh, you're, you're at the end of your time in Oxford and you're faced with this decision between going to do the LLM in the States or going to Cairo to study Arabic. Was there anything that swayed you in the end to go to, you obviously went to, you went to Egypt and you studied Arabic. Was that the moment where you, you veered off the law track, do you think? And what prompted you to to take the path? Yeah, that was fundamentally when I chose journalism, um, if I had not been able to find a good job in journalism, then maybe I would have later gone on and pursued the, the law track. But that was fundamentally the moment that I chose journalism. And I think that um, there were a few things going on. Um, the American University in Cairo was essentially free. They were giving me a free scholarship. Uh, Harvard Law School was incredibly expensive for a year. Um, <laughs> And I like the adventure of, uh, of, well, of Cairo for a year, but also the idea of, of journalism. I, in my travels, I had been really excited to learn about the world, to meet people, the idea of getting paid to interview interesting people, uh, I found kind of thrilling. Um, and the idea of being a fat cat lawyer in New York was also <laughs> appealing and, you know, that nice big corner office and the um, weekend home uh, somewhere that was appealing, but, you know, fundamentally I found just the excitement and, and the chance to do something, to have an impact, um, you know, the world's fight that seemed a better prospect in journalism Um I was very conscious of my dad's, um, you know, experience as a refugee. And um, this was not that long after Watergate, which two reporters at the Washington Post had uh, broken and had an enormous effect on uh, politics with. So um, while I did see 
law as a potential path to have real impact. And uh, I maybe saw journalism as perhaps a better path to do that and a more exciting one. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've pointed out earlier as well that journalism and particularly the type of journalism that you have practiced involves witnessing and writing about some pretty harrowing events and people's hardest moments at many times. What is it that you draw meaning from in that and what makes that worth it for you doing personally as well? That must be really, really hard, the process of doing that. People periodically approach me kind of on, you know, eggshells and they think I must be, you know, deeply pessimistic as a person or a little depressive, kind of the Eeyore of journalists, because I spend so much time covering global poverty, disease, genocide, war. Um, but in truth, I've managed to return from covering conflicts and terrible things, feeling pretty good about humanity. And I think that's maybe two reasons, partly that over the course of my career, I have seen clear, unmistakable progress. And when my friend Dan and I first traveled through Africa on vacation from um, uh, Oxford, for example, you know, every city you would go to, there would be people, uh, there would be people begging with leprosy um, or club foot or uh, blindness from river blindness, things like that. And, you know, I travel now and yes, there are some, but river blindness has been, well, dramatically reduced, uh, partly because of Jimmy Carter. Uh, leprosy is down more than 90%. Club foot is, you know, easily treated. Um, you know, there are now more, as there are now as many girls as boys uh, going to elementary school around the world. Uh, women have much greater opportunities in these societies, much less forced marriage of young children. So, uh, you know, and, and, um, and literacy, when, I was a kid, a majority of human beings had always been illiterate throughout history. Now we're approaching 90% adult literacy that changes the world, changes societies. And so I've seen that, that progress. Um, and then I think the thing that doesn't always come through is that I've seen terrible things in my reporting and massacres, uh, but side by side with the worst of humanity, invariably you find the best. And so you come across a warlord who is slaughtering people and his soldiers are raping people and so on. But you also come across these just heroic individuals who are risking everything to do the right thing and, uh, and to assert their humanity. And that evidence of kind of the, that when we're tested, that human decency uh, comes through has, <laughs> has somehow reassured my faith in humanity, even when I'm reporting on some of the grimmest things we can possibly cover. That's pretty powerful to be able to witness that, a real privilege too, I'm sure, to be able to see that and know that deep in your being. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're not tested in this country, you know, or in the West in the same way. And we're, um, you know, we don't have soldiers, you know, coming through, you know, asking about our neighbors. And, um, you know, sometimes when that happens, people do really terrible things and they fail that test. But it's kind of incredible that when we are tested, uh, what we are capable of. Nick, can we turn back to, we've, we've stepped through your schooling, where you've grown up and your time in Oxford, and then also the beginning of the journalism career in Cairo. Can you talk us through the road to the New York Times from there? 
Sure. Um, I had interned several summers for the uh, Washington Post, and there was this understanding that the Washington Post would hire me uh, when I was finished my schooling. It was ready. And uh, I wrote quite a bit for the, for the Washington Post from abroad. And so then I showed up in Washington at the end of my year in Cairo to say, OK, I'm here. Time to hire me. And they didn't hire me. <laughs> and um, they, the the foreign editor and national editor um, wanted to hire me, but the desk that would normally do the hiring was the Metro desk. And the Metro editor, you know, he just, he thought correctly that I just wanted to use the Metro desk as a stepping stone to, to go abroad. And he felt kind of imposed upon by the others. And so he, he never said, we won't hire you, but he just never hired me. And um, an Oxford girlfriend who was kind of with me, she, at the same time, she, so she was hired by the Watch Post and I was, uh, I was not. And so all this was very hard on my ego as, as well. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> but um, the, uh, so I decided to go and be a stringer from Tunisia. Um, and I thought that would help me work on my French and my Arabic. And it would be, again, a fun adventure. Um and so I uh, set off for Tunisia, but I stopped off in New York and um, to visit uh, friends, including one who was working for the New York Times. And he said, oh, you know, by the way, the Times business editor, financial editor is looking to hire some uh, people. Um, and I said, well, you know, put my name in. I gave him a resume and a cover letter and uh, met that editor. And he said, oh, you know, when are you going to Tunisia? Um, I told him, well, you know, can you delay it just a few more days to meet our personnel people? And so I did. And then they said, well, can you delay another few days to, you know, meet the next? And so on. So I never actually managed to get to Tunisia. The Times hired me um, uh, as a young economics reporter. And um, I faked an interest in business and economics. And uh, I did see that. I did see that on the CV that you started off in business and economics and thought that was quite interesting. The, the, the business editor at the time had spent a couple of years reporting in London. So he was a great Anglophile. And so we spent our interview, you know, talking about Britain and uh, books in Britain and this and that and Oxford and Cambridge. And he never got around to quizzing me about business and economics and the <laughs> other editors thought that if the business editor had, he must have vetted me on these subjects. And so when I arrived, a complete ignoramus on issues of business, then um, I think everybody was sort of surprised, but it worked out. And then you moved to Tokyo, I think, after that and started working from Tokyo. Is that right? Um, that It was a little longer than that. So I okay, spent a year I in, <laughs> I spent a year in um, New York uh, covering business and economics, uh, then a year in Los Angeles as a national correspondent, mostly covering business and economics, then uh, a year in Hong Kong um, as the Hong Kong bureau chief. And then I, the, the foreign editor was unhappy with the Beijing bureau chief at the time, and uh, I was kind of in the neighborhood. Uh, in Hong Kong, and so uh, they, um, so they arranged to uh, give me a year of language training, and then send me to China. Right, right. I see. After China was Japan. <laughs> I okay. So I really skipped a few steps in getting to Japan first. Tell us about when you met Cheryl in all of this as well. So um, I was uh, when I was reporting for the New York Times, covering you know business economics in Los Angeles. She was 
in Los Angeles for uh, covering uh, interning for the Wall Street Journal. And so we were direct competitors and we met and dated, but we couldn't talk about anything either of us was doing <laughs> because we were competitors. And I would call up the Wall Street Journal and say, uh, you know, can I speak to Cheryl? And they'd say, oh, who can I say is calling? I'd say Nick. They say Nick who? And uh, <laughs> just say Nick. <laughs> it was real little like a you know CIA KGB romance. Um, and then um, we you know we had a wonderful summer dating, but then um, she went off to finish one of her many graduate degrees and um, at Princeton, and uh, it she wanted to spend the next summer in Hong Kong. And it looked as if the Times was likely to send me as a, to be a correspondent in West Africa. And so it wasn't obvious how we were going to be able to sustain this. And then soon after that, I um, got a call from an old friend at the New York Times in New York who um, had been a clerk. And so he knew the passwords to get into the computer system. And he called me and said, um, uh, Nick, the foreign editor is writing a memo right now to the executive editor proposing various changes on the foreign desk. And one is the creation of a Hong Kong bureau and making you the Hong Kong bureau chief. <laughs> it was like this. I mean, it was just <laughs> yes, like Mackina, it was incredible. And so um, sure enough, the foreign editor called up about a week later and said, Nick, this is going to be a bolt out of the blue. But uh, would you like to be your Hong Kong bureau chief? And I said, oh, that's such a surprise. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and then Cheryl uh, went out to Hong Kong um, uh, after her year at Princeton. And then, uh, you know, we, you know, we never looked back. It was uh, then we moved together. We started our married life in Beijing uh, as Beijing correspondents. And let's talk about Beijing as well. Uh, one of your many claims to fame and also Cheryl's is that you are the first married couple, I believe, to win a Pulitzer Prize, correct? Uh, for your coverage of the Tiananmen Square movement. First married couple to win a Pulitzer for journalism. Uh, Will and Ariel Durant won a Pulitzer for literature in about 1960. Oh, I see. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, tell us about Tiananmen Square. And then I'm also interested in, I want to know more about how it is working together with Cheryl and how you've come to publish so many books together. So Tiananmen, um, you know, we arrived in China in the fall of 1988. It was a time when everything was very open. We made a lot of very good friends in, in journalism in China, um, in academia, and in government among reformers in the Communist Party. And then the Tiananmen democracy movement began, um, and it was just thrilling to cover, you know, the millions of people in the in the streets seeking more democratic change. And it was unclear how it was going to go. And uh, then um, on the night of uh, June third, nineteen eighty nine, I, you know, got a bunch of phone calls that the army is invading and heading toward Tiananmen Square. The protesting students had set up um, tank traps to stop the army in case it invaded. And so I couldn't drive. So I jumped on my bicycle and uh, frantically rode toward the gunfire as everybody else was running Please. away. I was thinking, you know, what a crazy job this is that has us riding toward gunfire I when bet. everybody in their right mind is running away. and. Um, then arrived at about the same, same time the troops did and uh, watched a modern army 
turn its guns on its people and just mow people down. And it, you know, it's one of those searing experiences that you just never forget. Um, and um, poor, uh, so Cheryl was at home writing. This was before cell phones. So, you know, she, she could hear the gunfire, but had no idea what, what was happening with me. And I was normally very good about deadlines. And so she expected me back, you know, easily in time for the deadline and in the chaos of being shot at i'd forgotten that this was a saturday night and so we had early deadlines for the sunday paper and uh so you know i wasn't showing up when i when i should have mm-hmm. uh she was and frantic she's hearing gunfire and she can hear the gunfire um you know she she knows that there's massacre underway editors in new york are calling every you know constantly saying you know where is nick is he okay uh and then i so i uh i had to abandon my bicycle uh because the because of the troops uh and i but i i ran back um and uh got back and she was you know she was sort of she was pretty frantic new york was frantic and uh sat down and wrote um you know, a story that I just, you know, hated to to write uh, about about the People's Liberation Army uh, massacring its people. Can I ask, do you find it hard to, the process of sitting and writing then about an event like that, do you find the words just come or is it a slow, painstaking process to get that story on paper? So, New stories in general, I'd say pretty much write themselves as that one did. Um, and also deadlines have that way of kind of forcing you to just spill it yeah. and write very quickly. Um, when I'm working with longer feature projects, then I tend to do a lot of rewriting. And um, I tend to have an idea in my mind of you know how I tend to approach things. But um, I, uh, I, my typical process is that, um, you know, I will write maybe 25% longer than what I need, and then I'll, you know, trim it down and I will very often move things around. Uh, so it's, um, you know, it's just, for me, at least it's, a, it's when I have the luxury of time, it's a slower, uh, process with a lot of revising. Okay. I see. Half the Sky came about during your time in Beijing, didn't it? What led to you and Cheryl wanting to write Half the Sky? So we were um, so seared by covering Tiananmen, and um, we we don't really know, but uh, there were probably between 400 and 800 people killed at Tiananmen, uh, you know, occupied the front pages for months. And meanwhile, um, I think it was the next year I came across a study saying that uh, every year in China, 30,000 baby girls died because they uh, didn't have the same access to food and healthcare as boys. Uh, and at around the same time, the economist Amartya Sen found that uh, worldwide there were about 100 million females who essentially had been discriminated against to death. Um, and you know, I, I realized, you know, I ne- this was something I'd never written a paragraph about. And meanwhile, the political side, I was writing about constantly. And so I began to report on it a little bit, issues like uh, sex trafficking, domestic violence. 
um, unequal access to education. And it just felt to me as if uh, a couple of things, one that a huge amount of injustice uh, was strongly associated with the gender, you know, that so many women were being battered, were being denied the chance to go to school, get a good job, whatever, but, you know, because of their sex, which was just so unfair. And it wasn't being redressed because it was this kind of domestic violence or sex trafficking because they were girls. And the other was that if we tried to figure out how we wanted to create a better world and, you know, fight poverty, fight disease, then um, that educating girls and bringing those educated women into the, giving them opportunities in the labor force was a pretty crucial way to do that. And when I tried to understand why Asia had prospered greatly under very different economic systems, South Korea, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, there's so little in common economically. And yet it seemed to me that the common uh, factor helping explaining their rapid economic growth was that they invested in human capital and the education of girls and then moved uh, very, very low productivity uh, female laborers in the house or the countryside into the modern economy and everybody benefited. Um, and so we, Cheryl and I became very interested in these gender issues. Um, initially, we couldn't imagine writing a book about it. You know, we we thought of ourselves as serious journalists and serious journalists write about, you know, missiles and, uh, you know, what presidents do. And, and, um, but, you know, the more you report, I, I went out to Cambodia and, um, you know, visited a brothel where there were these very young girls for sale, uh, their virginity, you know, up for the highest bidder. And it just felt just like what a 19th century slave auction would have felt like, except these girls were going to be dead of AIDS by their early 20s. Um, and so Cheryl and I began talking more about, well, how do we address this? Is there a book to be written? Um, and uh, we raised it with our, uh, you know, our publisher who said, well, you know, it's a pretty obscure topic. Um, you've written, at that point, we'd written a couple of uh, books, one about China, one about Asia that had done well. Um, it was hard to see what the audience would be for this. And, uh, but so we, you know, we took that seriously, but we delayed a bit, but then we said, came back and said, we want, really wanted to do this. And the publisher said, great. And, uh, you know, that's fine if you really, if, that, if you're committed. And so we did it. And um, initially, indeed, TV completely ignored it. We couldn't get on any of the morning shows that, you know, it was just seen as this kind of earnest but not very relevant issue of empowering women. And um, then Oprah Winfrey kind of rescued us and she gave us two shows about the book and then word of mouth um, just rescued it. Wow. And it turned around off the back of that. Yeah. Wow. Um, it just, you know, it's a reminder of how hard it is to, to predict. Um, but um, the one thing that I think we would have done differently is that we, in Half the Sky, we very much focused on the developing world and inequality uh, for facing women and girls in the developing world. And, you know, that there's a reason for that. There's the stakes are uh, are greater. Uh, girls are more likely to be discriminated against to death in India uh, or Algeria. Uh, but we also have obviously enormous inequities in the 
industrialized world. Mm. And I don't think we have the moral authority, you know, to tell other countries uh, to clean up their act unless we do a better job trying to clean up our own act. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and often we don't put those two things together, do we? We we keep them very separate in our conversations. So as I said in the intro, I personally am very grateful for Half the Sky as a book because I similarly grew up in a relatively small town in Australia. And Half the Sky, for whatever reason, I just stumbled across it in I think it must have been the bookshop in town. There was a copy in there and I bought it. And for me, that was the book that took my focus from being very domestic to international. And I just never knew about so much that was happening in the world. I just never turned my mind to it. Off the back of that, we started our own not for sale school interest group where we would try and raise awareness of how girls are trafficked and sold throughout the world. And also the the way that Australia might be involved or not in that process as well. So for me, that book was one that took my focus from being very um, insular to just opening my eyes to a huge portion of the world I had no idea about. So thank you personally for that. The follow-up question I wanted to ask off the back of that is, do you think that today people are much more aware of these issues than they were when you wrote, for instance, Half the Sky? So I think there is greater understanding of um, issues of sex trafficking, for example, and human trafficking, um, and a greater understanding that if, uh, you know, a 15 year old girl is out on the street, come hithering people that, you know, she may look like she's there entirely enthusiastic, but there may be a pimp, there may be circumstances and anyway, she's 15, you know? So I think there mm -hmm. is a greater understanding of the complexity of this. Um, some issues like maternal mortality, uh, there has been huge strides in. Um, nobody had really heard of obstetric fistula, which is a, a childbirth injury. At that point now, uh, I think a lot of people uh, have heard about it. A lot of money is going to repair fistulas and uh, in general going to um, reduce maternal mortality and morbidity. So there's clearly been improvement. Um, there is a growing understanding of the returns to girls' education. Um, but um, I also think that there is something of a retreat in both uh, America and Europe. Um, not so sure about Australia, but a sense that, you know, look, we... And in the U.S., you know, look, we engaged in, in the world for, you know, year after year and didn't do much good. And the world isn't really interested in us. And and let's fix our own problems first. And we need to solve the problems of our own backyard before we worry about Tanzania. And I think that's a um, there's a, a lot of people who think that and believe that. I think there is something parallel in uh, Europe. And so, you know, and even among among university students, uh, I think that there's a fallacy that goes the other way. I think that for a lot of young people, it's cool to go and spend a summer in, um, you know, whatever, in, in Tanzania or Costa Rica, working on social problems in a way that it is not cool to try to address inequities uh, at home on the other side of the railroad tracks at home. Yeah. And I think, that, you know, we need to convey that it's 
really important, you know, that, that both are important and that we can't solve every problem, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to solve some. And some of those are going to be domestic and some abroad, but, uh, you know, we can do a better job. Returning Nick to, so we, we, we got sidetracked relatively early in your journalistic career, I have to say. Fast forward through all of the many years of extraordinary uh, reporting that you've done, the excellent books you've written. You, in 2021, nearly went down the public office pathway. Our conversation just now, knowing that as well, has brought me back to, I've had so many conversations uh, with friends and colleagues of late in the world that we're in with this idea being thrown around that if you really want to change something, you have to run for government. You have to get in and get things done. I wondered what you think of that. And also now having run for governor of Oregon and going back to the New York Times now, has that changed your perspective on anything? Not really. I mean, I'm glad I ran. <laughs> Not glad about <laughs> I was... Uh... I was heard from uh, running the Secretary of State said I was ineligible, but you know I learned a lot running, and I believe that it's important to for people to 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 compete for office. Um, I I really also developed a real appreciation for those folks who toil in state legislatures and county commissions uh, and just put themselves out there, um, don't get a lot of credit, get often, you know, almost no pay and uh, really engage in, you know, public service in the best way. So I developed a real appreciation for that. Um, when I was in, you know, as a journalist, I kept, <laughs> I kept seeing public officials doing things that seemed completely harebrained to me. And I thought, you know, if only there were people who sort of followed evidence and, <laughs> and adopted evidence-based policies, boy, we'd be in better shape. And um, then when I was actually running for office, I, you know, I immediately saw all the constraints and how hard it is to tell voters that they're wrong about things. Uh, and so, um, I, you know, in, in journalism, I'm paid to be provocative and to tell people that they're wrong. In politics, that's a lot harder. And um, so, you know, that's the uh, <laughs> that's the trade-off of of truth telling. That it's, um, I think, it can be uh, challenging for people in politics to provide that kind of real leadership when the public wants to do something different. Um, but um, you know, but that said, I, I, boy, I encourage people to do it. It was mm -hmm. a incredible experience. I gained a deeper understanding and, it, you know, it didn't work, but I did my best. I gave it a shot and didn't work out. And so if not public office for the next little while, at least, what's next on the cards for, for Nick Kristoff? Um, well, after I was booted off the ballot, so I wrote a memoir, <laughs> will uh, come out next year and um that uh you know that uh that has a lot of <laughs> rose in oxford and early journalism uh material uh i've been working on that i need to get the photos put together for that <laughs> and um then uh, rejoined the times in october and um so i'll continue to do international reporting i was in ukraine was in somalia uh and i find that 
you know, really important. I'm going to India soon. Um, I, you know, deeply believe in that kind of international reporting. But I also became interested when I was running for office, really. Well, I mean, partly even before that is maybe one of the reasons I did run for office, but just the um, the social destruction in communities that have been left behind. And uh, on my old school bus now, um, more than a third of the kids who were on the school bus with me are now dead from drugs, alcohol, and suicide. And that's Please. just is unconscionable. Um, and in America, you know, I think too often we tend to say that, well, that's because of, um, you know, globalization, industrialization, mechanization, and it's not because other countries managed to industrialize without that kind of mortality. You know, we made some really bad policy choices. And I think that we persist in some really bad policy choices because often, I mean, the, the divide increasingly is between the well-educated and those without an education. It's a political divide uh, and it's an opportunity divide. Um, we're seeing these deaths of despair in America. Um, you know, we've lost 107,000 Americans last year to overdoses, um, you know, a quarter million total to drugs, alcohol, and suicide. Again, just the scale of this is staggering. And I, I will be writing, uh, more about this, um, and trying to understand it. Rightfully so. Let's pivot slightly now, Nick, to our what we call our rapid fire questions, which, uh, as they sound, just whatever comes to mind when you hear the question, really. My first question for you is something interesting that you've learned about yourself or more generally in this past year. Um, running for office, I was really struck by how older people are overrepresented in the political process, partly because they vote more, mostly because they donate more. So that's one thing I learned. Okay. How does it feel to have been described as the Indiana Jones of your generation of journalists? <laughs> well, I'm <laughs> blushing slightly. <laughs> but but I, I, good, because I mean, I believe it's important to get out and report. And I think that too often journalism to save money has been about stirring the pot rather than going out and reporting, adding things to the pot. I think we contribute best when we go and actually report. Sure. One person, Nick, that you would love to have a meal with, alive or dead? You know, I mean, I part of me wants to say Gandhi or somebody like that. And of course I would, but, but I mean, this will surprise people, but, you know, it might be Donald Trump. And that's because... I mean, I've taught, I think the U.S., I have a hard time understanding how the U.S. did something as dumb as put this guy in the White House uh, once and almost a second time. Mm. And I, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to him a couple of times, but I don't really know him. And trying to understand that cataclysm and how we could have done that and how what the risks might have been. Um, so I think I'd strangely put Trump at the at the top of that list. Interesting. Well, I would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation, I have to say. Uh, Nick, you've been to some of the most far-flung countries in the world and places. Is there one that comes to mind that has really surprised you or led to just a wholly unexpected experience? Um, 
So there are a pair of countries in West Africa that on my first trip, I think, affected my political evolution. Um, you know, I was a good liberal sort of lefty. Uh, and uh, in driving across West Africa, uh, Benin was a socialist and the country right next to where Togo was, you know, this very kind of right wing capitalist country with this quite awful dictator. And so I expected to adore Benin and completely scorn Togo. And um, in going through them, it was obvious that Benin, while it had fairly equitable aspirations, um, that, you know, in fact, it was not providing decent health care or education, largely because it couldn't afford them and because the economic incentives weren't right. And meanwhile, Togo, um, while it had a more rapacious capitalist system, was actually doing a somewhat better job at that time of getting kids in school as a result, generating a certain amount of wealth so that people could, you know, put a tin roof over their uh, over their home. Uh, women could deliver in a clinic rather than at home, et cetera. And so it it really forced me to um, to focus not just on kind of ideology and intentions and being well-meaning, but on pragmatic results and you know, the outcome, I mean, there, that's, that's not always, I mean, some, there are some right-wing countries that have been awful in terms of results, but it did, uh, it really focused me mm. not just on the rhetoric, but on what is actually happening in a village somewhere. Mm. And interrogate some assumptions, I'm sure too. Mm. Yes. Uh, one last rapid fire question for you, Nick, which is whether you have a favorite quote. You know, I, I always feel that I should, because I'm periodically asked, when I do books to write a, a, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I kind of fail you there. Um, but if I can, maybe a thought is, you know, more than a quote, one of the people that I met at Oxford was Isaiah Berlin, the, the philosopher turned historian of ideas. And he, I was introduced to his ideas there and he, I had dinner with him and he emphasized the, um, idea of, um, competing values, that there's no one that we all, as humans, we want to search for, you know, the one idea, the one value, the one primal thing. And he, he emphasized that there are actually many different ones that we want to elevate and they're incommensurate. So we have these very difficult trade-offs that are impossible to calculate. And that, um, that decisions kind of have to be made in sort of a moral ad hoc way sometimes. And he was very skeptical of ideologues for that reason. And that has just very much rung true to me as I've reported around the world that we face these very difficult, messy decisions. And anybody who sounds too sure of themselves, you know, keep keep your hand on your wallet then. Um, and um, but uh, Isaiah Berlin's quotes would be way too long too. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> <laughs> A general recommendation of reading in that direction. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, that's a perfect point, I think, for us to draw a line under our conversation for today, Nick. Thank you so much for your time and your insights and all of your wisdom. It's just been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Sophie. And uh, my warmest wishes to uh, to all of Oxford, to Rhodes House, and of course, especially to Maudlin. Uh, so next time you're at Maudlin, say hi to the deer. I definitely will. Thank you, Nick.